to be here. This is going to be, uh, hopefully, for me and for you, a, an encouraging night, but also a, um, uh, a challenging night. Maybe look at, look at this topic of interacting and engaging the next generation from a fresh perspective. Uh, I um, started thinking about, I've, I've always been placed working with middle and high school students. It's just, it's, I believe it's my calling in life, uh, and I definitely don't get it right all the time. Uh, however, uh, over the past couple of years, I've had this thought in my, in my mind of how can I really extract the thing uh, that I guess people, you would say, have natural gifts at working with people. You know, like, there's people in certain professions that have that it factor, they have, you know, Michael Jordan just has something and he can't maybe teach it. He's just, he's got it. And I've, I believe that there are, there are people that are like that in a lot of different professions and certainly working with students, there are people that I've encountered over the course of the last several years who seem to have a magnetic pull when it comes to working with students. And so my thought in my head was, why does it have to be like that statement that I would always hear, which was, well, you know, they're just gifted. They just got it. You know, if you got it, you got it. Um, and we're just kind of left to our own devices to try to like, and especially there, I mean, because there's so many people that are influencing students. There's teachers, coaches, parents. Um, and so my heart for tonight is to really dive in deep and maybe not reinvent the wheel, but maybe uh, look at the wheel a little differently and, uh, and talk about it. And hopefully at the end, uh, we'll have some time for some Q&A or some comments. I, I, don't, I like to call it question and comment, not question and answer, because a lot of times the questions lead me to say, well, what do you guys think? Um, not really have an answer. Um, so uh, we're going to go ahead and get started uh, with that in mind. So uh, the heart behind this is this, and this is where I'll start for tonight. And, uh, and the statement is this, is that you asked for this. You ask for this. And what I mean by that is that you uh, have placed yourself in one way or another in line, or, or, or you've asked to know more about this generation of middle, high school, the teenage generation, but in one way or another, you, you've asked for it. You've placed yourself, whether you're a parent, whether you're a coach, uh, a teacher, um, you're, you're saying, I'm, I'm in this. I'm jumping in with a whole uh, set of students or a whole different uh, demographic of people, and I am trying to influence them. That's why you're here. That's why I'm here. I'm here because I believe I've been called and chosen to influence the next generation. And, uh, and I remember one thing that really struck me. You have a book in front of you right here. Um, and as we go through tonight, um, there's just going to be some blanks that you're going to be filling out um, to help you kind of think through some of these things. And that first blank that, uh, that, uh, that I'm going to go ahead and have you fill out is, is that when you're working with students, when you're working with uh, middle, high school, and even it's getting younger and younger, the, the, the bridge, of, it's kind of weird how the bridge between a 10-year-old and a 14-year-old is very narrow, but the bridge between a 14-year-old and a 20-year-old or a 30-year-old is larger than it's ever been um, in this day and age. But I'll tell you this by starting out with a story. When I went, and uh, when I went to South Korea a few years ago, 
I graduated high school, uh, went off to college in Ohio, um, spent some time back in South Carolina where I grew up, and then I went over to South Korea for three years to teach English. And I, I will never forget when I arrived in South Korea, um, it was very, very clear, very quickly, that I was among strangers. Uh, and I mean that in a, in a cultural sense, um, and uh, obviously you have a different race, different culture, different customs, all these things. And I remember uh, thinking to myself then, well, I, I, better, I better dive in to this culture because I'm going to be here a while. And I remember thinking, well, they're strangers to me, but I'm the alien. I'm the alien. And so that's your first blank that I want to kind of like challenge you with that thought is that when we're dealing with middle and high school students, you and I are the alien. We're the foreigner in their world. They're strangers to us, but we're the foreigner. And so, and there's a big distinction there because I remember uh, living in South Korea and interacting with multiple people that would, um, they didn't really want to dive deep into that culture. They wanted to remain, they wanted to remain kind of in their world somehow, even though they're all the way in another culture, all the way, and I was on an island in South Korea, and people were still, they refused to learn the language, they would get in a taxi, and they would just yell louder in English uh, how to get places and things like that, and I remember thinking throughout the process of how valuable it is to just go ahead and begin to enter in. So uh, the, the, the blank that I would like you to, to fill out there is as we, as we go um, at, the, at the bottom, and I'll come back up to these middle ones, uh, it's, it starts with the relationship. It starts with relationship, and in order to draw students out, we must be willing to enter in. We must be willing to enter in. And relationships are the, the foundation for that. And that's nothing new. The idea that we must be relators is nothing new. This is, again, not reinventing the wheel. This is saying something that has always been true. We are made, we are designed to relate to other people, and what we must be willing to enter in. So uh, there's a couple of dangerous uh, ideas that people, I, I, I feel, you and I can fall into when it comes to influencing these strangers. Again, we're the foreigners, we're the aliens, but we come in and we try to influence the strangers. Um, and so there's some dangerous ideas that are associated with that. The first dangerous idea that I've seen in, in, in my uh, interaction with students is this. Uh, you do you, and I'll do me. That's one attitude. That's one dangerous idea when it comes to influencing the strangers that we encounter, especially these middle and high school, this next generation of strangers. You, you stay over there. I'm still an influencer. I'm still your authority, except I'm not going to try to understand you. I'm going to do me, you do you. Uh, and then you're supposed to do what I say, and you're supposed to listen to me, and things like that. So that's a big dangerous idea, is to stay over here uh, without entering into their world. Um, and the second dangerous idea is I'm clocking in and checking out. I'm clocking in and checking out. Uh, I, I find this to be a, a real common uh, attitude toward uh, students really is that I'm going to do my time, I'm going to put in my time, I'm going to punch the clock, and then I'm going to kind of like, uh, I'm going to check out, you know, like, or, or, I, or I get so overwhelmed with what's going on in this generation that we're dealing with. We're dealing with a generation that for literally 
um, thousands of years, millennia, there wasn't that much of a gap between a, uh, a like I said, a 14-year-old and a 25-year-old. Um, you, you seamlessly sort of went right into uh, adolescence and into adulthood. You were already pretty much an adult for millennia until about 50 years ago, 50 to 75 years ago, where this gap started to happen, where there was a big, huge leap from childhood to adulthood. So many times we see this massive gap when we're in positions of teaching or relating or, or, or parents that are here who have students who are 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 years old, and we all we can see is the gap. All we can see is like, oh my gosh, they are so far away from me and my understanding of the world and what the, what the way it used to be when I was a kid and that sort of thing that we, we sort of kind of find ourselves checking out a bit. We're just kind of like, I'll clock in, I'll do my time. I'm the parent or I'm the coach or I'm the teacher but I'm going, to kind of, I'm going to kind of check out a little bit uh, because I don't really know how to handle it. Like, uh, I'm out. I've had multiple conversations with parents and teachers who, 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 who have this mentality of like, well, I don't really know what to do. So I'm going to kind of try to just sort of keep them at an arm's length but still sort of grasp and hang on somehow. The third one is I can fix them. I can fix them. These are dangerous ideas to, to, I can fix them from out here, is basically what I should say. I can stay out here, but I can reach in and, and, and tinker with their world and fix them and show them the truth. Um, uh, so uh, the, the premise, the foundation of this is that it's all about relationships. It's all about relationships. We must be willing to enter in. So what I've done over the, over the course of the last several months is... Going back to the idea that there are people in this world, and I've met some of them, some of them are here, um, Meg Larson sitting right here in the back, Brian Miller, I've worked with these two uh, amazing uh, teachers, but I've also encountered a lot of other people in, in, my, in my life in working with students. Um, to tell you a little bit more about what I've done in my life is um, when I graduated college, uh, again, I said I went off to South Korea for a few years. Then I moved to Colorado and worked for a nonprofit called Axis where I traveled all over the uh, North America and down into South America, over to Asia, Canada, all across the United States, speaking to middle and high school students on critical thinking and worldview. So at one point, I was interacting with and engaging about 500 middle and high school students a week, 500 different, uh, and it, that, that's a whirlwind, let me tell you. Um, it's just from New York to California to Florida to Georgia to, you know, Minnesota. I mean, it was just a massive different di uh, dynamic of interacting with all these different students and then going down to South America, some international students down there, over back over to Korea and Asia. And... The reason why I've started to be compelled to speak on this topic of building these habits of relationships is because I noticed that there are people that have these gifts. They have this, this gift of pull. And many times when we say that people have gifts, we say, well, they have it and I don't. There's nothing we can do about it because they're, they're intangible. We can't learn them. The question that I thought to myself was, what if you could learn some of those intangible gifts that people who are gifted with students, um, what if we could learn them? What if we could boil them down? What if we could say, what are some different practices that are common among these people um, in the world that, that maybe draw, that allow themselves to be drawn to students or students to draw themselves to, to the person that's influencing them? 
And, uh, and it used to frustrate me so much in the different schools that I would go to and the schools, uh, the schools that I've taught at, both internationally and domestically, of the teachers and influencers that weren't relators at the same time. They were, they were just the teacher. They were just the, they were just the authority. And they, just, they cared about their content, but they didn't care about the, the student. Or maybe they did, they just weren't showing it in, in, in a way that was drawing students to themselves. Uh, and so that's the heart behind building these six habits. So uh, what I've called these six habits is six habits or habits to help you win. Habits to help you win. And what I mean by that is win students trust. Win students trust. I believe that trust is the number one, the number one uh, factor in you being able to influence whatever student or whatever uh, you know, child that you're interacting with. If somebody trusts you, they'll listen to you. And I believe that there are a lot of times that you and I, if we're not careful in, our, in today's climate, uh, what's going on with, with all the different technology or whatever, we can, we can distance ourselves and, and we can be sort of like not really aware of what's going on and that breaks the trust and, and how we interact with them. And so, uh, so that's the heart behind uh, what we're going to do. So it all starts with relationships. It all starts with trust and, and habits that are going to help you win. That's what we're going to do. And we've got six of them, six of them. Let me explain real quick this little icon box at the top. I, um, I, I, I like to doodle sometimes if I'm like, I know some people do as well. So at the, top of your, at the top of each page, at the top of each habit, I've just provided an icon box for you. So you can draw a little stick figure or something to remind you of the concept. So sometimes people are, are visual, not just word or auditory. So uh, if you want to, like for example, on this one I drew a little alien in this little box. Just, uh, just to remind me, it's like, okay, to start the foundation is, okay, if I'm going to influence a stranger, I have to realize that I'm the alien. So I, draw a little, I drew a little alien uh, for myself to remind myself. So let's jump right in, uh, and we're going to talk about these six habits um, that we can distill uh, to talk about um, how can we influence a stranger. Um, so the first one, let's go jump right in. The first one is to learn her name. Uh, this may sound like really basic, and it really is, but there's so, mi- there's so much depth in the idea of learning a name. Uh, Sh- uh, Shakespeare uh, is famous, obviously, what's in a name? What's in a name? Uh, he actually muses about this. He says, that if, if a rose were called something else, would it smell as sweet? So he's, he's speaking directly to the power of a name. And I believe that when we talk about names when it comes to students and when it comes to people, it's even more important to talk about the importance of a name. Uh, and uh, uh, Charles uh, DeLint, um, uh, a Canadian author, said this, A name can't begin to encompass the sum of all her parts. But that's the magic of names, isn't it? That complex, contradictory individuals we are can be called up completely and whole in another mind through the simple sorcery of a name. Through the simple sorcery of a name. And uh, this began to really speak to my heart and to my mind over the past several years as I began interacting more and more with specifically students who are transitioning from children into that adolescent teen years. 
I began to see that when I, when I use names more regularly and I learn names and I commit them to memory and then remember that student's name, it, it, it becomes very powerful in their willingness to open themselves up to me as, as, a, as an influencer. Um, the guy that uh, started the, minist- uh, the I guess the, the organization that I worked for in Colorado, his name was David Eaton. And, uh, and again, we're, we're talking to 500 students a week. And he told me at one point, and I'll never forget this, he said, 50% of what you do is learn names. 50%. And this is, I mean, we were in schools and out of schools in three days. He said, 50% of what you do is learning names. When we would go into these schools and we would speak, we would speak in teams of four people, and we would try in the course of three days, if there was a school of 500 students in the grade or class that we were, we would try to know everybody's name by the time we were done in three days between the four of us. And we would try really, really hard. It's just like doing push-ups. You get better and better and better. But let me tell you what happens when you learn a name. If I were to meet a student within the first 10 minutes of me arriving at that school, and I were to say, hey, your name's Joey. Okay, great. And then I walk away. We have maybe a conversation for you know, 30 seconds, a minute. And then maybe, uh, maybe Joey's not that great of a kid. You know, maybe, maybe Joey's kind of a punk. You know, maybe he's kind of like a troubled kid. Uh, and I, 20 minutes later, remember Joey's name just in passing in the hallway. It's like, hey, Joey, man, good to see you again. All of a sudden, within a span of that moment, that second of me recalling Joey's name, Joey likes me. Joey wants to listen to me. Joey wants to be influenced by me. And guess what? Joey's got friends. And I would see Joey in a a crowded room of students, eyes locked in when we're speaking about critical thinking and, and, and worldview in this age of chaos. And I would see him locked in and listen. And I, and I remember one time I saw a, a, a kid that I, I had met and interacted with. He's listening, listening, making an, I, and I had made an intentional effort to recall that person's name before I began speaking. And I, I remember his, his friends were like talking to him. And he's like, he's like, shut up. He told him to shut up. And he's like, I'm listening. The power of names is unbelievable. I can't even I can't even tell you from my own experience how powerful they are. But that is habit number one because it has to be foundational. Names are extremely, extremely powerful. So the, the, the why behind each of these habits, we're going to have a why and then an action. The why behind learning names is this. Learning a student's name will take you halfway to gaining their full trust. Learning a student's name will take you halfway to gaining their full trust. And if, if, if it's not the, if it's not the, and how, do, how does this apply to all of us then? Like, well, what if we already have students and the most times we interact, we already know their name. Using their name, using their name uh, affectionately, using their name uh, intentionally builds trust. It does. Our name is so attached to our identity that as humans, 
Uh, they've done studies on this, and I, I have one that I'm going to cite here in a second on the power of, of just the, the herd name. Like when you hear your own name, it's so powerful. This is what Kendrick Lamar, he's a, a rapper of today, he said, if I'm going to tell a real story, I'm going to start with my name. This is pop culture talking. Pop culture understands this idea. Your name's important. And so he says, if I'm going to tell a story, I've got to start with my name. And now, for whatever reason, this might be a horrible reason. He might be because I'm like, the, you know, I'm the most important person in the world. However, he understands that his name's important. It ties, he ties his identity directly to who he is. Alexander the Great uh, uh, said this, How great are the dangers I face to win a good name in Athens? This is hist- I mean, if you go from ancient history all the way up to the current day, you can, you can do a study on people and the famous people and, they, and quoting the, their quotes about names are endless. You can find all the things that people have said about names because names are extremely, extremely powerful. There was a study done uh, by a doctor named Dr. Dennis Carmody, um, and it's called Brain Activation When Hearing One's Own Name Versus Somebody Else's Name. And it was amazing uh, that they hooked uh, a test group of several um, adolescent uh, students to these electrodes, and they they actually did a you know they had the baseline test, and then they had this big swings and all these all these different criteria, and the frontal lobes that were that just lit up when a student heard their own name was like the same as um, when they hear like sounds of extreme affirmation and affection. Um, and it's just amazing that our brains even are wired to recognize our name and, and its attachment to our identity and who we are and the value that's attributed to using our name. This same one, the same study, it was kind of like, there's other, other studies that have kind of followed this study as well. Um, this study showed that a child under sedation, a child under sedation responds um, to the sound of his first name. So like drugged out, in sedation, say the name, and the brain lights up because our names are so valuable. Our names are so important. So the action step in this habit, the action step in this habit is learn names as if the power of your power of influence depends on it because it does. Because it does. So learn names as if your power of influence depends on it. Because it does. Um, I had a, um, a professor at college. I went to a small school in Ohio called Cedarville University. And uh, um, sorry, the president of our school, his name was Bill Brown, was known. He was kind of famous on campus because of how good he was at names. Um, at his previous school, before the small school that I was at, there was about 1,500 people in this small liberal arts school that he was the president of before our school. And he was famous because people said that he knew every student's name on campus, 1,500 students. And let me tell you, this guy had pull with students. He walked into a room, everybody, everybody wanted to be near him because they felt known. And it was because he was famous for saying people's name. 
so again, I can't emphasize that enough. It, it, it's one of the things that I have seen come to fruition, and I have seen a, extremely useful in my years of teaching of making a conscious effort to not forget names. Uh, I see it here. I, I'm the student director here at, at, at Lighthouse Church, and when, on Thursday nights when we have 60 to 80 students running around, uh, students come up to you all the time, come up to me all the time, what's my name? What's my name? If they've ever introduced themselves to me, they will always come up and say, what's my name? And I hate it when I can't remember their name. And, 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 and you, know what, you know what this is? Uh, I, I kind of like a few years ago sort of had to check myself on this area. Because what's a common, what's a common sort of joke that people make about, about names, like, like learning people's names? What's the, what's the common thing that people say? I'm not good with names. I guarantee you you're as good as, ever, as anybody else at names. Uh, name learning, if it's a priority and you become good at it, will dramatically improve your influence with your child who lives in your home using that name intentionally. Names are powerful. Uh, but uh, it's, not, it's not an excuse to say I'm not good at, at, at names. You're good, you're good at whatever you want to be good at. <laughs> and if it's valuable to you, you'll be good at it. All right, so let's look at number two, habit number two. Um, and again, I give you a little place in the middle of the booklet if you want to jot down, if, if a thought ever pops out to you. Um, so again, uh, that icon box you have if you're a doodler, um, you've got a little note-taking box in the middle there or kind of some lines in the middle if you, if you, if you have a, a thought for maybe the discussion at the end. Um, so number two, uh, well, first of all, I'll, I'll drop this quote on you real quick. This is Dale Carnegie. He said, a person's name to, is to him or her the sweetest and most important sound in any language. Um, I've just found this to be true. Um, I found even people, so there are, I've met people that say, I don't even like my name. Yeah, you do. Everybody likes their name. They like to be known. They like to be known. Number two, listen with earplugs. Habit number two, um, to influence a stranger as the alien, is listen with earplugs. Now, what, what do I mean by that? And I specifically mean this. This is a habit that I try to develop in my time of teaching um, uh, locally, but also internationally, is being able to listen um, without interjecting, with, without entering into the conversation. This is very hard to do if you're an influencer, um, especially when uh, you disagree with what's going on or you disagree with the conversation that they're having. If it's, if it's, a, if it's a dangerous conversation or if it's a bad conversation, um, it, I would try to make it a point, if, there was, if, there was, if it wasn't endangering anybody's life or if it wasn't harmful to them immediately, I would try to make a conscious effort to not butt in if I wasn't part of the conversation. And so many times, uh, the, the, a danger in influencing strangers, is that we, we feel like we have to enter into that conversation. And uh, uh, there's a quote, an ancient quote from the Proverbs. It says, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only expressing his opinion. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but expressing his own opinion. And this is very common among teachers and parents, I found. This is a common, this is a very, it's a strong inclination for myself as well, is I don't want to understand, 
I just want to tell you what to think. I want to tell you what to think, and I want to tell you right now. I want, this, is, this is when you have to have what I, my opinion, is this instant. Um, and uh, Larry King uh, wrote this. Uh, he, this was, that's you know, 4,000 years ago. This is recently, not too recently. But he said, I remind myself every morning, nothing I say this day will teach me anything. So if I'm going to learn, I must do it by listening. And this is a powerful thought about listening because I'm not a very good listener when it comes to, like, I'm a talker, I'm not a listener. And so this is a, this is a challenge for me, this concept of listening. But specifically, the habit that I have found with students in particular, middle and high school, this next generation, Gen Z, they're calling it, is the, 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 the art, really, of not just only listening when you're in a conversation with somebody and being a listener, but being a fly-on-the-wall listener. And this does multiple things when it comes to building trust with students. Because again, the anchor, the anchor of influence is trust. The anchor of influence is trust. If, if you are not trusted, even by your own child who is your own flesh and blood, if they don't trust you to have their back, keep their secrets, all this, if they don't trust you, they won't talk when you're around. And so when I was uh, a teacher at, um, locally at Annapolis Area Christian School, I made it a point, I tried my hardest when I was sitting there and students were around and they were talking. If I, want, if I knew, if, I have to, if I'm going to influence them later, I've got to listen now. I've got I to gotta show them that I'm, I'm able to be around them without always butting in without always correcting, oh, nope, that's wrong, nope, can't do that, don't say that word, you know, all this kind of stuff. I have to be able to, to, to delay my instruction by listening. Um, so uh, this is uh, interesting. So I'll go, ahead and, I'll go ahead and say the why behind this, this uh, listen with earplugs. So listening with earplugs, you get the picture, right? You're standing there, you're in the crowd, Many times it was me sitting at my desk, or maybe you're sitting on your couch, and your 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 whoever your child, your teenager is sitting talking on the phone with somebody or whatever. You're sitting there, and you overhear something. Me was sitting at my desk, and I, and I, I I like to have the the policy where students felt like they could always be near me. They could always be near me and and go about their normal lives, even though I was there. And here's the deal. Listening without interfering proves to students that you'd rather relate than be right. That you'd rather relate than be right. And it also shows students that, um, you know, they are more important than the rules. You know, and many times when we're in positions of influence, there's, there's, there's boundaries, there's rules for students. There's, there's rules that they have to live by. And, and, and if we are always interfering, if I am always interjecting, what am I telling them? I'm telling them that you're not important. The rule is important. Now, are the rules important? Absolutely. I tell students all the time, boundaries create freedom, not the other way around. However, if I'm not willing to listen and I'm always just driving you know, the, the bad out of you, <laughs> by what I say and giving you my opinion, I'm telling you, I'm telling that 14-year-old student, I'm telling that 16-year-old you know, girl who's like talking with all her friends, I'm telling her that 
you're not important. I care about whether you follow the rules or not. And so it's very valuable to, to, to practice this. Uh, and this, this, is, this has to be an intentional activity because this does not come naturally to not interfere, especially when you hear things that you don't want to hear. Um, and and, and, and I'll, I'll say this very, um, I guess, cautiously because it's obviously if there's dangerous activity that you overhear, there, there might need to be immediate action. <laughs> However, I can't tell you how many times I overheard a conversation because students felt they could say it. You know, group of people, the gossiping, all the, you know, all the stuff that gets said with that. And then um, in a setting that was more appropriate, I was able to bring that conversation back up, maybe one-on-one or maybe isolate two of them out and be like, hey, I heard you talking about, you know, so-and-so. Uh, what's up with that? And they're like, oh, yeah, da-da-da. And because they feel comfortable, because I didn't jump in or whatever, and I, this was a work in progress. I mean, I, I was, I was, it was a tension because I was always trying. I, I blew it a lot of times, you know, where I'd say something. I'd be like, oh, man, that, I didn't have any influence there. That wasn't influential when I jumped in and I interfered. Influence happens later when they have trust. Trust has to be a company influence because you can't just influence if they're just like, oh, ooh, you know, the teacher is talking, you know, the teacher's listening. And I found the opposite is true when they, when they know that you're going to always interfere, when they know that you're always going to interfere, they shut up. They will never say anything around you. Um, and, and that's what you want. You want them to say things around you. You want to know what's going on because you do care. And so all of what I'm saying when it comes to uh, listening without interfering, it's not saying stop caring. It's saying because you care. Or I'm not saying that if you interfere and if you interject that you don't care. It's what does it say that you do to them? It says you don't care even though you do care. So again, just some, uh, some thoughts to consider so what about an action? I'll say this one, uh, this, I, I bolded this in my mind as I was thinking through this talk. It says, this doesn't mean you condone inappropriate behavior. Okay? Doesn't, doesn't mean that you're actually agreeing with the thing that you're hearing happening. But sometimes correcting inappropriate behavior requires waiting until an appropriate moment. Sometimes correcting inappropriate behavior means waiting or delaying that moment to where the moment is appropriate. Um, we had a, a, a system uh, at AACS where I taught with Meg and Brian uh, called aftercare. And I, I was a, a regular aftercare um, person. You know, I, I stay after school for two or three hours and watch the students. And there was always the normals that were there. Uh, and I'll never forget, um, uh, I had more conversations uh, with uh, a girl named Gabby than I ever thought I would ever have. And I tell you what, I had some conversations that I never could have possibly had had there not been any kind of trust built throughout the day. I had so many conversations in aftercare about things that went on during school, uh, and the only way I was able to have those conversations is because there was at least some degree of trust. So here's the action. Here's the action step. Um, 
actively practice listening from a distance. Actively practice listening from a distance without inserting yourself into the conversation. This isn't like a rule like you have to follow all the time, like you can never enter a conversation, but it's, an act, it's, it's a discipline. It's actively practicing being the fly on the wall. Number three is probably my favorite. This habit of influencing uh, the next generation is blame yourself. Blame yourself. Uh, and, and what I mean by blaming yourself is uh, blame yourself. Like, if, if you're ever communicating anything of any importance, uh, I tried as much as possible to try to find something that was a weakness in me and point to that. So it's, it's pointing to a weakness in order to say something to them. And, uh, and, and so to talk through this a little bit, so... Um, uh, the why behind this is um, building trust and influence doesn't happen without showing weakness. Building trust and influence doesn't happen without showing weakness. There was an article that was written not too long ago by uh, Fast Company magazine, and it said this, the secret to getting other people to trust you quickly, okay, this, this was the title of the article, the secret of getting people to trust you quickly. I feel like this is the magic thing that everybody wants, right? I just want, I want you to just instantly trust me. And so they wrote this article about the secret. And it was fascinating. They did these studies and they referenced these studies about um, uh, what makes people attractive to other people. And, and they found, they did, they did some tests and studies, and they, they referenced a, a, a pretty famous um, uh, a study that was done by uh, a guy named uh, Elliot Aronson uh, a psychonom- of Psychonomic Science. And he, and did, he did this test, and they, they set up this, uh, this scenario where there was people that were mock going in for this interview. And, and so they had these people that were highly qualified go in for an interview. And then they had another person who was equally as qualified going in. So two people went in for an interview, highly qualified. And it was all set up. It was a, it was a test that was done. And the person with the equal credentials, scored off the charts on all the tests, um, uh, spilt their coffee, like on purpose. That was part of the interview, or as part of the, the study. Spilt their coffee, fumbled around. Oh, I'm so sorry. Uh, uh, cleaning it up with paper towels and things like that. And that person... Um, based on the other people on the other side of the panel that were reviewing the candidates for the job, um, were overwhelmingly more drawn to the one that had made a mistake, that had made a mistake. This is a pretty famous study that's been referenced multiple times. I think this was done uh, back in the 60s, I believe. It's been, it's, it's been referenced multiple times in this idea of attractiveness, now, why do I even mention that? I believe that I saw this element of human nature in middle and high school students. When, he, when, when middle and high school students see your weakness, they trust you almost immediately. There are, or at least there's a part of their brain that trusts you. They, they jump right in, and they're like, okay, he's a failure, too. So, I mean, they're not, I'm not the only one that's a failure. So, and it's almost like you can hear the sigh in the room. And I remember speaking to students about whether it would be behavior or whether it would be some level of, uh, of their lives, of integrity, honesty, whatever it was. 
and I it, the, immediately when I used myself as the as the as the as the person the the person that's like to blame, it's like I'm the worst at this. And I tell them a story about you know the time that I failed or whatever or the time that I lied, and you know and, and, and just say, hey, I'm I'm no better than you. I'm no better than you. Uh, again, blaming yourself. This is not self-deprecation. This isn't negatively like you know, coming down on yourself. This is just, hey, if somebody's going to take the blame, blame yourself, especially if you're trying to build trust. And it happens, and it's scientifically backed up. I mean, psychologically, we've done other studies on this as well. Other studies consistently show that when people in authority intentionally show a flaw or reveal a mistake they've made, it rapidly and positively builds trust. Studies like this also debunk the common belief that trust must be built over a long period of time. Um, you know, there's probably elements of that that are true as well. But trust can really be built quickly when you show your mistakes. This is vulnerability at its, at its core. Um, and we hear that in leadership, company leadership, management. But certainly, this applies to students, especially in that entering from elementary, crossing over to puberty, into their high school years, they, you know, they're, they're, they're looking for you to make a mistake. And why not just give it to them? Listen, I'm a, I, am a, I am a mess up too. You're, like, I'm, not just, I'm not talking at you. I'm talking with you. We're learning together. That's how influence can truly be uh, built. Uh, Winston Churchill uh, said this, the price of greatness is responsibility. It's taking responsibility. If, if you want a student to see you as their authority and to see you as their leader, take responsibility for your, your failures. Um, I was talking with a friend a, a few weeks ago, and, and I said it's almost as if for every one time you use yourself as a positive example, use yourself as a ne- negative example three times. I mean, use yourself, use yourself blame yourself three times more then you, I guess, say, hey, I do it like this, so, so should you. You know, I'm, the, I'm, I'm good, so you should be good as well. Um, it's very powerful um, when we do it uh, the right way. So the, the, the uh, third habit of a highly effective or a, uh, a strong relator to the next generation, the third habit, or the fourth habit, sorry, is walk away. Walk away. This is related to listening with earplugs. This is related to listening with earplugs, but here's a, here's a habit that I tended uh, to try to uh, build into uh, my life, um, and this was the habit of knowing how long to stay in a, a circle of influence. Like if I were to walk in and talk to a group of students, is knowing when to walk away. And uh, Ben Franklin you know, put it this way. He said, you know, fish and visitors stink in three days. I would say it's about three minutes when you're, when you're talking to a group of, of high school students um, or middle school students. Uh, th- this, is, this is an interesting uh, topic because the why is that students will be more comfortable with you around when you know when to walk away. Students will be more comfortable with you around when you know when to walk away. 
I, I saw a, a, a Saturday Night Live, I think it was a Jimmy Fallon sketch a while ago, and um, Jimmy Fallon plays this character um, it, it's he, where he actually dresses up as a, as a middle school girl, and, um, and he says, ew, a lot, right? Ew, like that's, that's this thing, like he says, ew, um, as kind of like this disgusted response to the world, right? And, um, and, uh, and her name is Sarah, Sarah with no H, because H's are ew, you know, like, like the whole, so he plays this whole character, and uh, there's also a character that is, is Sarah's stepdad, Gary, and Sarah's stepdad, Gary, um, is played by another actor, and he is one of the corniest, like, dorkiest, I mean, like, hey there, everybody, you know, like, and he'll come marching down the stairs, and he'll just charge right into the little group of, you know, middle school girls, and they're all like, oh, it's my stepdad, Gary, you know, it's just classic, classic, and so the idea here is that this concept of being able to walk away is really avoiding being stepdad Gary. It's really avoiding being stepdad Gary. I don't think there's anything more repulsive to a student is an overstayed welcome by an authority. And, 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 and I mean that, and I don't mean that in a, in, a, in a negative sense. I don't mean that in to say like, hey, you gotta really cater to what they want. That's not what I'm saying. Remember, it's all about building trust. We're entering in to their climate. We're not becoming the generation that we're trying to, what we're entering in. If we're, if we're drawing them to a higher uh, truth, if we're drawing them to a higher understanding of, of who they should be and uh, understanding of wisdom and integrity, and if we're going to draw them out, we have to enter in. But don't stay too long. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. There's a few, a few uh, points to, to kind of mention. Um, this borders... This borders, uh, and it's hard for me to explain this, and I'll, I'll try my best. I would, at times, this borders ignoring students. And, I, and here's what I mean. There were times when, in order to build trust with students, you walk up, I would walk up to a you know, group of you know, middle school girls, uh, fun, fun times, and... I would uh, just, I would ask maybe one question, and then they would start to say something, and I'd be like, oh, cool, awesome, and then I'd be like, see ya. I mean, like, it, it borders, like, almost like blowing them off. Like, you're just like, ah, I'm, I'm out, see ya. Here's, here's, here's the nuance of this. The nuance of this, this habit or this technique is you're showing them you're not going to overstay your welcome. They don't want you to be a part of their tea party or whatever's going on. They don't want you to be, they, 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 want, they want you to be there. They want, they want you there, but they don't want you to, you know, talk about, you know, whatever they're talking about. So you, you, you walk back away and you become, you put in your earplugs, you start listening. So again, it's building trust through walking away. And I found this to be, I found this to be a really challenging but also a powerful tactic, uh, a powerful habit to build. Um, and this isn't, and this, this, this takes intuition. 
This takes a little bit of, you know, tact and read and know how. You've got to read the situation, read the tension of the conversation. You don't want to like, okay, tomorrow I'm going to try this. And then, like, you go up to a group of, you know, students and they want you to be there and you're like, see ya. <laughs> like, and then you're like, I walked away and now they hate me. No, um, this, this, this takes a little bit of, of, of reading the situation. Uh, so, again, it's not like do this all day, every day. This is just a situational, hey, your, your power to influence is not contingent on how long you stay in the, in the circle. Your power to influence is not contingent on how long you stay. Um, this is not timid disengagement. This isn't like, oh, hey, guys, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to back out now. This isn't being timid. This is being, this is being decisive. This is being conscious of what you're doing. Hey, how's it going? Yeah, I can't stay long. See you guys. You know, um, it's it's showing them, and this and this is what I really uh, want to um, to emphasize that this um, this this can do. The length of time in a conversation doesn't automatically equal the amount of influence that you have. True. Um, be comfortable with the practice of relating than disengaging, and don't force yourself to stay. Be okay with walking away. Don't force yourself to stay. Be okay with walking away. Um, and this is especially good in, in initial conversations with students. Like if, 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 you, don't, like if, if you don't know the group of students very well, or if, or if your child has friends over or whatever and you don't know them very well, this is real important. This is an important technique just to kind of like step in, then back off. Step in, back off, put in the earplugs and start listening. Um, uh, there's a, an author, uh, Rochelle Goodrich, she said announcing the intended arrival of some people is kind of like issuing a hurricane warning. Uh, students, I, I witnessed this. There were certain teachers or certain uh, people that they would, they, would, they would warn each other about. Hey, somebody's coming. We've got to stop talking. Stop talking. Stop talking. You know, okay. You don't want to be the hurricane warning. You, you want to be... You want to evacuate so that they won't. <laughs> you want to evacuate at the right time so that they don't evacuate you forever, right? And they don't want you to be around. And let me tell you, you make that move, uh, you're, the, you're that teacher that nobody wants to be around, that word spreads. That word spreads like this. So you're, that, you're that influencer, and, and then it doesn't even matter. You could, you could be... You could be using all these habits perfectly for the next two years, and if you get that reputation of being the person they want to back away from, it's it's harder it's harder to win back that trust. Um, So, um, so the action in this one is in certain conversations with students, make sure you have an exit plan. Make sure you have an exit plan. Um, There is nothing more awkward for 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 an influencer or a student when somebody doesn't know how to get out. I mean, it's just, I mean, you see it happening, I'm cringing, I'm like, oh, get out of there, like, God, back away, stop trying to tell that joke, you know, uh, or whatever it is, have a plan of how you're going to get out, before you enter, before you, I mean, there are times when I walk up to a, a group of students, and I'm like, I'm staying there 10 seconds, like, I'm already, I'm like, I'm in and out. Like, I'm, I'm in and out. I'm going to walk up. I'm going to say, hey. I'm going to be like, I've never seen you before. You look cool. See ya. And that's it. That's all they need right there. Guess what? Trust is built. Trust is built when you get out, when you evacuate. 
If you don't evacuate, they will. So, um, so the action is in certain conversations with students, make sure you have an exit plan. There's one point that I, I, I really, really wanted to make. Um, oh, this is it. This, this, is, this is the one that sort of like really spoke to me. Uh, don't simply always be around. This is different. Uh, you communicate instead that you're always available. Uh, don't, don't be the influencer that's just always there. Hey, hey guys, I'm here again. Be always available. When you back away and you're still there and you're still listening and they know you're listening, but you're not going to always be the guy that's always telling them what to do and how to do it, and you get people individually on the side, you have those conversations at appropriate times, they know you're available. And I guarantee they'll come to you. They, they come to you instead of you always having to chase them. You're, you're not the one chasing the strangers. The strangers are coming and trying to get to know you, and they're like want advice, things like that. So these are, uh, these are powerful, I think, powerful things to, to, to remember. Number five, number five. Um, before that, I have a, a Portuguese proverb for you. Visits always give pleasure, if not the arrival, the departure. It's <laughs> a Portuguese proverb for you. Number five, number five. Uh, don't overreact. Now, specifically, um, what I mean by this is you can put in parentheses off to the side, to behavior. Don't overreact to behavior. Um, don't, overreacting is always, you know, unwise. You know, you should, you know, the golden mean, Shakespeare's golden mean. Um, his favorite characters were the ones that weren't extreme emotionally on either side. They were, they were level-headed. They are in the middle. So the overreactor is always considered, I mean, Romeo, not a good character. He literally um, was like a, a one sentence before he met Juliet, he was in love with Rosalind, right? And then Juliet walks in and he's in love with Juliet. And then he thinks Juliet kills herself, so he kills himself. I mean, it's just, I mean, overreaction all over the place. So he was not Shakespeare's ideal character. But overreacting to behavior as an influencer is very, uh, is very detrimental to building trust. It almost can take away trust faster than you can even get done with your overreaction. Your trust is broken, especially when it's behavior. When there's bad behavior happening and an influencer overreacts, jumps in, harshly reacts to that, trust is immediately gone and very hard to rebuild. Very hard to rebuild. So here's the, um, the why behind this. Behavior that is attacked is not behavior that will change. Behavior that is attacked is not behavior that will change. Um, and I, I, you can take that to the bank. I mean, you, you will not see behavior change if the, the, the behavior that you're trying to change feels attacked. If there's even a hint of attack, walls go up. Big, tall, thick, strong, insurmountable walls go up around behavior that is attacked. The University of Melbourne did a study, and I love this, um, in 2014. Um, they did a study of 188 middle school students. 188 middle school students, and they somehow followed them for a couple of years. Don't know exactly how it was done, but the study concluded 
this. And I'm going to read this verbatim because this is directly from uh, the study that was uh, published by the University of Melbourne in Australia. By remaining warm and supportive, parents may be able to influence the way their teen's brain develops at this stage. It says, the study showed that during disagreements, um, mothers who became angry and argumentative, um, sorry, uh, in the 2014 study, 188 children compared the effect of mothers who were uh, warm, affectionate, and approving during disagreements versus mothers who became angry and argumentative. Teens at age 16 who had affectionate moms when they were 12 showed brain changes linked to lower rates of sadness and anxiety and greater self-control, according to the study led by the researchers at the University of Melbourne. Isn't this amazing that our brains and our, and our, and our emotions and our hearts are, and, and our minds are, are deeply affected by harshness and, and being attacked We're not made for that. We're not designed for that. We're designed for grace. We're designed for um, humility. We're designed to receive instruction um, gently. Um, And so this idea of reacting to behavior is so crucial in building trust. Uh, I believe this is one of the most important ones of all the habits, is the reacting, reacting to behavior. If a student knows that, hey, they might get in trouble, They might have consequences, but they're not going to be attacked. They're going to be supported. The trust remains intact. The trust remains intact, even though they might get punished. They might be, they might be, you know, not have a phone for a month or a year. I I talked to one student, they were like, I just got my phone back. I haven't had my phone in a year. I was like, what? Okay. (laughs) All right then. Um, So uh, this is perhaps the most repulsive. Thing, I guess, or, or, or emotional thing that they can experience from an influencer is an overreaction. Um, I, I see it. I've seen it. I've seen it with my eyes. The look that comes over their face and their demeanor and their posture when they're getting reacted to and yelled at um, without, without a desire to understand what actually went on. Um, and so... If you have walls coming down as an influencer, if you're, if you're clicking on all cylinders and you got those walls coming down, there's trust being built, and then you snap and you react to a behavior, walls come back up. And it's harder to get, harder to get through that. Harsh, impulsive responses to behavior says that a student's worth or their identity, their worth or identity is no more than their ability to follow the rules. Um, you're saying you, your identity is your ability to follow this set of rules. That's all, that's all it's saying. Um, so as we um, kind of move toward habit number six, um, overreacting burns a major bridge to building a relationship with a student. Bur- burns the bridge. You've got to rebuild the bridge. You can rebuild the bridge, but you burnt the bridge down. Now you got to rebuild it. Now you got to get back over it. Now you got to build the trust again. So the action step to this, uh, and, I, and I'll say, and I'll say this really quickly. Um, Plato, Plato says this: the the excessive increase of anything causes a reaction in the opposite direction. 
Um, so if we excessively are, are, are anything towards, a, in this case, a student, if we act obsessively or emotionally, you're going to create an opposite reaction to, to what you're trying to accomplish in that student's life. This is a very deep thought by Plato, and I believe it applies in this golden, this golden rule of, of being level-headed and being, being, uh, being gentle, being uh, even-keeled in our responses. Um, uh, this is an American psychologist, uh, Albert Ellis. He said, strong feelings are fine. It's the overreactions that mess us up, right? He says, it's okay to have strong feelings. It's okay to not agree with a student. It's okay to, like, be angry at them even. But it's the overreaction that messes everything up. So the action for this one is when you disagree with a student's behavior, make sure the first words you speak are relational, not reactional. Relational, not reactional. Make sure the first step you take towards a student, towards your, towards your teenager, towards the person that you are really trying to influence, if you disagree with them, step towards them in relationship, not reaction. Because, man, you got a long way to come back. you got a long bridge to try to build again if you don't. All right, the final one. This is, this is the one that is probably the most common sense one, I think. This is the one we hear a lot about, but hopefully we'll have a fresh perspective on this. Stop pretending. Stop pretending. So this is the, the sixth habit of, of, of just don't do this. Stop pretending. Um, and here's what I mean by that. And the why, why do I say that? Let's do the why first. Students don't respect an authority that tries to be exactly like them. Students don't respect an authority that tries to be exactly like them. And this may sound a little contradictory in this concept of entering in to their world, but that's diff- entering in is different than becoming like. Um, and so, uh, so with that, one of the biggest mistakes a student leader in, 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 in leading a student is getting in the trenches and becoming like them. I see this a lot sometimes, or, or glimmers of it. You see glimmers of it where you're like, you're trying to be a little too much like the student versus challenging the student, entering into their world, having a sense of curiosity about what's going on with them, but you're still going to be you. Uh, It's hard to draw students out and up, further up and further into maturity if you go all the way to the point of being as immature as them. Um, you're not going to actually pull them up to anything if you, if, you actually, if you actually get at their level as far as maturity goes. Now, when it comes to empathy, empathy is getting at their level um, under, and understanding where they are. It's, 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 baseline, it's, it's, it's establishing a baseline of who they are and what they're doing, how they're feeling, what's going on in their world, that sort of thing. That's understanding. That's empathy. Being them um, it's weird. It gets real weird, and they and 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 trust comes down again. And they're like, okay, <laughs> bye. You know, like they don't they don't they don't want to be near you if you're going to be like them. Like, what, are you kidding me? You're 43 years old. <laughs> you know, like, get away from me. <laughs> you know, um, and that and that's a tension when working with students. How do you how do you again build the trust? Show that you're available. Show that you care. Show that you're curious, but you're not creepy. How do you, how do you really enter into their world and yet say, you know what? There's a higher calling for you. 
when you, when, when, when you graduate from your teen years into your adult years, there's a higher calling for you. I'm going to try to show you what that's like. I'm going to try to show you what the higher calling is like. Yet I'm going to, I, hey, I, I may even know, you know, I, I make it a point to know, literally know what songs are coming out like every week. Like what songs are they listening to like now? Like what, what songs, are, you know, what movie, what, what, what are you watching on Netflix? I mean, come on, are you serious? Another season of Pretty Little Liars? You know, like, you know, like, is this really happening? But I'm, I'm there. I'll even watch an episode or two. Get through it, you know? And then, and then just be like, okay, I get it. I get what's going on, you know? I understand their world. I'm not going to be them. I'm not going to start having a party and have people come over every, you know, Friday night and watch their, the shows and things like that. I'm not going to get weird about it. But again, it's understanding versus becoming. And, you, and it's a hard line sometimes to, to distinguish. But that's why we need um, that discernment when it comes to how to do that. Um, so there are two reasons for pretending, I think. And then, and then, and then we're done. I have a final thought um, as we... As we as we close this out, um, there's two main reasons, and and I, and I don't think they're really fun reasons to hear, especially for me. If I look at the man in the mirror and I ask, well, why do why do I feel that compelling to sort of like really want to be like them and you know be cool and things like that? Here's the two: uh, it's the fear of rejection, fear of rejection. That's when we have to ask ourselves, where am I? Like, where's my level of security in who I am? Because if I'm working with a bunch of students and I care so much what they think about me that I, I feel like I need to, like, fit in, like I'm back in middle school myself at the lunch, you know, in the lunchroom trying to find some place, to, somebody to sit next to. If I'm feeling that, then I need to ask myself, where am, I, where, am I gaining, where am I getting my security from? Am I getting my security whether my kid or the person I'm interacting with likes me um, so this one, the fear of insecurity or the fear of rejection and insecurity about your personal identity. They go hand in hand. Your personal identity. Where are you getting your worth? Where are you establishing who you are? It, who, do, who, do you, who are you? <laughs> if, if, if I'm defining myself based on whether I'm a friend of a 13-year-old or that 13-year-old likes me, then I need to check my identity, you know, meter <laughs> to see where I see where I stand because then that gets then that gets super weird, right? Then I'm like trying to be friends and like, my, where's your friend group? <laughs> you know, that's what I want to ask. But where where are the people that are your peers that are that are supporting you and and and, and encouraging you? Um, uh, so again, this this is um this is this is big. The, the idea of of pretending. Um, I see it all the time, but I, and and I don't think um, I don't think I have to convince you that this is a bad thing. But again, it's, it's it has to be a habit that's worth considering. As uh, like ask myself, like what are the ways that I'm really trying to establish my identity through them, you know, versus um, versus really uh, encouraging them to to live up to their identity uh, and who they are. Um, so you're not trying to take them out of their world. You're trying to understand their world in order to help them live wisely in their world. So you're not trying to take them out of their world. You're trying to come alongside of them, teach them how to live in their world so that they can make a difference in their world. That's really what you're trying to do. So the action is to live in your world, live in your world, and show them that you care enough 
about them to understand theirs. Live in your world, but show them that you care enough about them to understand theirs. So here's a couple of uh, Catherine Hepburn. Uh, she, she said this. She said, acting is a nice childish profession. Pretending you're someone else and at the same time selling yourself. So I have to ask the question, am I, am I, you know, am I acting <laughs> when I'm around my peer, uh, my group of influencees, the students that I'm influencing, am I just an actor? Am I trying to pretend to be somebody I'm not? Or do I already know who I am? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really be myself. Like, I mean, and again, she, this, is just a, this is just a quote about acting. You know, it's just, I just made it fit, right? But I mean, she said, I like that first part. Acting is a nice childish profession. Uh, you know, it's like you just get to pretend. So don't be a pretender. That's what I have to tell myself. Don't be a pretender. Be, the, be a real person. Be who you are. Um, and enter into their world. So a final thought. Here's the question I have for you as, as we end uh, tonight, and I really do appreciate uh, so much the fact that you even came and, uh, and listened to some of the, just the thoughts that I've been thinking about over the last uh, couple of years. And the question that I'll end with is this. Are you willing to stoop? Are you willing to stoop? And many times this word stoop is very negative. You hear this often said, I will not stoop to that level. I'll, I'll, I'll do a lot of things, but I'm not going to stoop. I'm not going to stoop to that level. But the posture of stooping, I believe, is one of the most powerful and humble postures that we can assume when, it, when, it, when it's relating to the next generation. Um, because it's saying, hey, we're willing to come down. I'm, I'm going to be who I am. I'm going I'm to interact with you with a level of integrity and a level of surety about who I am. But I'm, I'm going to come down and I'm going to get at your level. And so I can see you eye to eye. And so I can care. And so I can know your name. I'm going to remember your name too. I'm not just going to learn it and then learn it again and learn it again. I'm going to remember your name. I'm going to say your name. Uh, and, and I'm not going to say your name just only when I'm mad at you. I'm going to say your full name as a, as a way of affection toward you. I'm not going to overreact to you. I'm going to listen. I'm going to, I'm going to seek to understand you. Um, I'm going to know when to walk away. I'm going to know how to listen with maybe some earplugs in my ears. Just kind of like, hey, I'm here. Carry on. You can talk about whatever you want, but we'll talk about that later. You know that. And what I found is that when we do these types of things with students, when we're influencing students from a, from a posture of stooping, from a posture of, of lowering ourselves and, and humbling ourselves, the power of influence increases exponentially. Exponentially. So I'll say at kind of the end, I, I, there's, a, there's a, a phrase that I like to say, and it's this. Influence is built on trust. Influence is built on trust, which requires empathy, and pride ruins everything. Pride ruins everything. And what I mean by that is that phrase, I will not stoop. That's below me. That's beneath me. I've, th- those, years are the pa- those years are in the past. Like when I was a kid, you know, da-da-da-da, you know, like kids these days. I mean, these types of phrases are the, are the phrases that, that students are, are used to hearing. So they've written off the entire generation of influencers over them. They've, they've written us off. We're the aliens. 
They're strangers, but we're, we're the aliens. We're so far out of their world, and we're not willing to stoop, so they write us off. But what happens when we stoop down? What happens when we let go of that pride that says, I've, I've risen above where you're at? I don't really understand it, and I don't care. Because that's, that I believe the, more, the, the longer I see this generation that's growing, and this is the, uh, and, and we could do a whole other talk on the, the difference in this generation versus any other generation in civilization. I mean, I mean, there are things happening now that have never happened in civilization, like in the last 20 years. I mean, I mean, the internet was, well, and that's, I mean, it, what, thousands and thousands, millennia of civilizations. And nobody had the capacity to be able to communicate like we have now, up until the last 20 years. Isn't that crazy? Thousands of years, and we've only lived 20, 20 years in this, in this little thing. We don't understand what's going on and the effects of it and how it's going to end. You know, so there, we could talk all day long about all the, the evils of the technology and all this kind of, which, and, and I would say, um, and I would say technology is not the problem. We are. We're the, we're the problem. You know, we're, we're the ones that will we'll take anything and jack it up. You know, it doesn't matter. But are we willing to stoop? So that's my, that's my final thought is are we willing to stoop? And are we able to define that in the way that that term should be defined? Stooping for the point of influence and humility because pride ruins everything. Um, so I, I do really appreciate you guys being here. Thank you so much for taking time. I value your time. Thank you for taking time out of your day, out of your evening, on a Saturday night of all times. Thank you.